0: Good morning, everyone. This week we are studying the double parasha, Matot Mas'eh. It's the final parashiot of Sefer BeMidbar, which is the fourth book of the Torah. After this, we will be moving on to the, fourth, the fifth and final book of the Torah beginning next week. So let's begin. Parashiyot Matot Mas'eh are very, very, very long. Uh, and there's a few messages throughout, a few lessons throughout that I'd like to draw on the first is the way the parasha begins speaking about the laws of uh nedarim and shvuot. so some details there there is the, the torah tells us is that when someone promises to do something either through a neder or a or shavuot which i'll explain the difference Neder is mostly is translated as a vow and a shavuot is translated as an oath when someone makes one of these don't go against your word. That which you say you'll do, you should do. You should do what you say you'll do. So this is one of the mitzvot of the Torah to fulfill your promises. Okay, and now there's two types of promises. There's a neder and a shvuah. Let's talk about the difference. In general, shvuah is on the person in the sense that if I say I will, I swear I will do something, I will go somewhere, I won't do something, I won't go somewhere. That is me swearing to do or not to do an act that is called a shavua or or an oath a nether is when i'm saying something on an item or on an object so for example i could say i am swearing off all carbs to me all carbs are forbidden to me it's a it might be a good diet it's also falling under the category of a nether i swear off all apples or all fruit or whatever it is that someone decides to say that is now A neder, the item becomes forbidden to me. You end up at the same way. You could say, "I swear off all carbs to me." I make a neder that all carbs are prohibited to me, or you could say, "I make a shavua that I won't eat carbs." It gets you to the same place. But I'm just explaining how there is two concepts, neder and shavua, and there's different reasons why these technicalities matter. But essentially, when someone promises to do something, they have to do it. Now, the Torah proceeds to say, but what happens if you regret it? So this is what the Torah tells us, that if it's a, let's talk about it like this. There's a concept called HaTarat Nedarim. HaTarat Nedarim, it doesn't say it explicitly in the Torah, but it's something that our sages teach us, that if someone makes an, an oath or a vow, and then afterwards regrets it for whatever reason, they didn't realize how difficult this would be. In in a moment, they were passionate, they made a promise because they felt they wanted to. But then, when the inspiration dies down, they realize how, like, this is not sustainable. So, what does someone do? They can go in front of a betting of three people, a court of three people, or even one uh, expert in the laws of vows, say, This was my promise. The person will confirm that you, that. The, meaning, the court will confirm that the person regrets it from the beginning. It's very important for a neder. A person has to have regretted it from the beginning. Meaning, had I had I known that it would have been this so difficult, I would never have promised this to begin with. You you need that element of saying that I regret ever having made this promise, and then the promise will be able to be annulled. That's called hadra nederim, where this court of three people, after having listening to the reasoning and confirm that you regret it from the beginning they can go ahead and annul the vow now there's one additional way to help ladies let's say it's a single woman her father has the ability to do it without her having to go to the court the father could just take care of this or if it's a married woman her husband has the right to but that's only in the first day in the first day that the husband or the father hears about it This is to avoid the whole process, right? Otherwise, and the lady will have to go to the court and we'll have to talk about her personal promise that she made and why she regrets it. And I could tell you from firsthand experience, sometimes it's embarrassing. You made a promise for whatever reason, and now you have to go tell a rabbi about it, and it could be embarrassing. So the Torah is saying, look, there is a way out to do this in a private way. Uh, As long as it's done immediately, that when the husband hears about it, he could say, you know what, okay, we could, we could annul this on our own, or the father could say we could annul this on our own. But if not, then it would fall under the same category of requiring Hattar Nadarim. I have so many stories to share about Hattar Nadarim, because people make promises. If someone makes a promise, and they, our intention is to make a promise, and you have to keep to your word. And like I said, there's many, uh, there's many, many, many situations where someone does this. And then, you know, they say, God, help me to, for this to happen. And if you do, then I'm going to read the Tehillim. I'll read Tehillim once a week, every week. And then, okay, five years later, you you see that you're spending an hour a day on this. And it's like, you have kids now and you have the family now. And it's like, it's very difficult. These things happen. These things are common. So we have this tool of Hathoran Darim, but there's a preventative tool. And what is that? you don't have to make a commitment, a technical promise. You could say the words, which means I'm not making a technical promise. I'm making a commitment, but I don't want it to fall under this technical requirement. You want to retail every day of your life. So say, I, I, I'll retail him every day of my life. You made your, your commitment. You will continue to fulfill it, doing it, but you don't fall under this category of making this nether. So that if you wanna stop, you could stop without having to go through this whole problem. This is where the Mishnah that tells us, speak little, do a lot. You don't need to promise to do something, just do it. If you, for whatever reason, feel like you need to make that verbal commitment, so you have this tool at your disposal, but it's, it's better not to use this because by using it, you're setting yourself up to fail. Just a thought exercise. Someone swears off eating an apple. Someone doesn't says, I make another, all apples are forbidden to me. And now they are offered with two things, let's call it three things in front of them. There's an apple, there is uh, bacon, which is not kosher, or there's lobster, which is also not kosher. If you had to rank how bad these are, how would you rank it? So people would normally say, or if you had to eat one, which one was the best to eat? People would say, Well, you eat the apple because the apple isn't not kosher. It's kosher. I just said I can't. I I made a nether not to eat it. The answer is they're all equal. The Torah has given us the ability to introduce new restrictions, make it equal, and and, and that becomes bona fide from the Torah law. You're not allowed to eat apples. They say we're not allowed to eat pork or not allowed to eat lobster because you said you made that commitment. So it's much better not to make the nether to begin with. You want to you want to not eat apples? So say, I won't eat apples. Again, speak little, do a lot. Okay, the next thing I want to speak about here is there's some wars that we go into. And as part of the wars, we are going after Bil'am and Midian. What happened was, we spoke about this at length last week, Parashat Bin Khas. What happened was, the Bil'am was hired to curse the Jewish people. And instead of cursing us, what he did, because he couldn't, instead of cursing us, what he did was he exposed our vulnerability and said that if you get the Jewish people involved with the sin of promiscuity of illicit relations, then they'll be able to, to you'll be able to attack them. They'll be able, we they won't even need to curse them because they'll sin, and they'll when, because of their sin they'll fall and they'll they'll uh, experience tragedy, which is exactly what happened. So they had the the ladies from Midian came and enticed the men. The men. Sin and fell for it and they were enticed and because of their act of sin there was a plague and 24,000 people died because of it. So we afterwards are going to go after Bilam because this was a for, an act of war of Bilam sent uh, 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 these ladies to cause us to sin. This is not to take the responsibility off the men who sinned. They were completely responsible and they died. So the responsibility we're not deflecting the responsibility by saying we did something wrong but this was we were enticed to do it and there were people who are trying to, to hurt us, including Bilaam, who was hired to. So we went to war. We killed Bilaam because of the Torah tells us, because of the advice that he had uh, against us. And we went to war and we killed others as well because they, they were a nation that were try, that was trying to hurt us. We could have just lived in peace. You guys do your thing. We do our thing. Again, this is not to deflect the blame of the act of sin. The, the, the men from the Jewish people who sinned died. And they were held responsible. And Hashem was furious at them for how they acted. But we, Moshe didn't want this to continue. And Hashem didn't want this to continue. So there's a nation that's trying to attack you, be it physically or be it spiritually. If they're trying to attack you, you should defend yourself. So we did. And we, we fought this war. And the Torah tells us something very interesting. It says, uh, after they fought the wars, the, the army came back. So it's really such a beautiful line we counted the people that came back from war and no one was lost meaning all of the soldiers that went out to war returned to war it's a very it's a it's it's good good news because unfortunately there are usually there are often casualties of war how you go out to war and not everyone comes back but in this case everyone came back so it was a very very happy uh report at the end of the the war uh, and we defended ourselves then the torah teaches us um certain laws about as we we um went to war we um received or we took spoils of war a lot of dishes pots and pans and the torah now starts teaching us well okay these pots and pans are used for non kosher items uh how do you how do you make them kosher so the torah teaches us these laws of how to make um Non uh, vessels and pots and pans and cups that we get um, from someone who's not Jewish that was cooked non Jewish items in it. How you can go ahead and 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 clear it. And so there's a, there's a whole uh, aspect of halacha that talks about if you you know you had a pot and you cooked something that you weren't supposed to cook in it by accident. You had a meat pot that you cooked dairy in and it got mixed and you have meat and dairy. How do you now clean this pot? So the processes are all sourced. Uh, from this week's parasha, as well as there's laws of when you purchase a new uh, item, a new pot or a new pan, the first time when you when you purchase it, you have to go through a process of putting it in the mikveh. There's also learned that from this week's parasha. So there's a lot of these like laws of kosher that we learn from this week's parasha. It's very, and when I say kosher, I don't mean what you can and can't eat, but it's more about how to prepare and uh, your pots and pans and, and and your cups and your plates, et cetera. So a lot of that we learn from this week's parasha. Okay, now let's talk about the story of the tribes of Reuven and God. Where are the Jewish people, where is Am Israel situated at this point in our journey? They are situated east of the Jordan River, modern-day Jordan, and they are preparing to cross the Jordan River to enter the land of Israel, the land that was promised to Abraham Isaac, and Yaakov for them to inherit, as the Torah tells us. Uh, this is the land that Abraham uh, this is and that the army israel will inherit this land and we're getting ourselves ready to enter into the land but we're situated to the east of the jordan river and there's no one there there's no one there because we had fought some wars along the way wars that we were not interested in fighting we asked i spoke about this last week as we were going through we like knocked on the door and said hey can we pass through your land we're making our way toward the jordan river you're living here. We want to ask for your permission. You tell us which roads to go on. You tell us how to, how, to, how to do this. And some nations said no. So we went around. Some nations said, if you're going to try to come, you know what? We're going to war with you. And they had attacked us. Well, when they attacked us, we'd fought the wars we, we in defending ourselves. And then we'd win. And then we were stuck with all of this land that we didn't even ask for. So two of the tribes, the tribe of Reuven and Gad, said, hey, Moshe." We want to stay on the east of the Jordan River. Why? Because there's a lot of grass land here, and we have a lot of cattle. These two tribes, Reuven and Gad, they had a lot of cattle, and they said, if "We go into the land of Israel. It's not as doesn't have as much grass fields as we have here on the east of the Jordan River." And we're here. We want to stay outside of the land of Israel, and everyone else goes inside the land of Israel. And Moshe is a little bit triggered, right? Um, Maybe it's not the best term, but he's a little bit triggered. Why? Because we're now in our 40th year of our journey. 40 years ago, we sent spies into the land of Israel. They came back saying the land of Israel wasn't good. And so the nation listened to the spies and said, we don't want the land. And when they said that we don't want the land, there was a decree that they will not inherit the land. And for 40 years, they've been roaming the desert because they said they don't want the land. Now you have these two tribes that get up and they say, we don't want to come into the land. And Moshe says, have you learned nothing from history? Do you you not understand that your parents died in the desert? And we were been roaming around for the past 40 years because of comments like this of saying we don't want to enter the land. Don't do this. You want other people to go fight a war and you're going to sit here while you're going to be um, watching your your sheep grazing while others are going to be fighting war. So to this, they responded, no, no, we, we didn't. Uh clarify what we meant we're not saying we don't want the land of israel we're not saying we don't want to cross into the land of israel we're not saying we're not going to fight we will fight but what we're saying is it's in everyone's best interest if we inherit this land east of the jordan river why because there's more grass and we have cattle and we need field we need a uh, land for grass and if we take the land east of the jordan river that now expands the the amount that everyone else in the west of the Jordan River, meaning the land of Israel, everyone else can inherit that land, and everyone will get a larger portion. You'll split it up more ways. And to show that we're not against the land, to show that we're not doing this because we don't want the land, but we're doing this because it'll actually help everyone, we'll be on the front lines of the war going into the land of Israel, fighting the wars, conquering the lands, settling the land, and then we'll go home. We'll set up our families here, but we are going to be on the front lines of war, fighting for something that we will not even inherit ourselves. It's a very different message. Moshe's concern was by Reuven and God staying to the east, not not God, God, but the tribe of God, Reuven and God by staying to the east of the Jordan River. The message they'll be sending is: we don't want the land of Israel. On the contrary, they're saying, "No, we'll stay east of the Jordan River. We'll have our families east of the Jordan River, but we will come fight." For the land of Israel, with the rest of our brothers and sisters, fight for the land, conquer the land, and we won't even get a blade of grass from that side ourselves. And that is showing a completely different message. That's showing how we love this land so much that we're willing to, to fight for it. And we love our, our family and our brothers and sisters so much that we're willing to fight for them, even though we won't even benefit from it. So Moshe says, fine, if that's how you're going to do this, I accept, I accept the land east of the Jordan River. You could stay, settle. But you need to join in the war, the front lines of the war, as you say you're going to do. And it's exactly as what they did. And later on, we see in the stories of, of Joshua that Reuven and God, excuse me, were indeed on the front lines of battle. And they were indeed, they kept through to their promise, consistent with the first thing we learned of this parashah, that when you promise to do something, you should do it. Okay, the last, the last section I want to talk about is really the second parashah. Of of the double parashah that we read is parashat mas'eh. Parashat mas'eh talks about the journeys. It's like giving a reverse, uh, or, or um, a recap of the itinerary that we took, the journeys that we took. We left Egypt. We've been in the desert for forty years now, going around, and there would be times where we would settle. There were times where we would move. We would move to another city. We would settle every time the the, the mishkan would would be taken down because the Mishkan was this portable uh temple sa- uh, sanctuary it would be taken down it would be packed up we'd go to the next place we'd settle we'd build it back up and then we'd spend some time there then we'd take down the Mishkan pack up go to the next city so the parasha goes through and tells us all of the 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 journeys of uh, where everyone was like I said like it's a recap of the itinerary and one thing that I read is that if you look at some of the names Of the cities, the cities were not, this wasn't necessarily the name of the city that like when you entered this city, when they entered the city, there was a sign that said, welcome to this town. Um, The names given to the city were named based on what occurred for us there. In other words, these are uh, names that we, the Torah here is creating for the locations that we stayed at because of the experiences that we had when we were in that city does that make sense so you would name the city based on an experience that we had there and, then, and there's there's a couple of examples of this and the, the Talmud explains why is this place called that it's called that because this happened why is this city called Kivrota Taava because that's the area in which uh they had desires to eat meat so they had an experience that happened there so it was called that etc cetera, etc cetera. there's many many uh commentators explaining why each area was called uh, the name that it was called and what had occurred for them in that area so why am i saying this because i read something very nice that you don't can get to control the journeys of your life when you're sent on a journey throughout your life you don't get to control where the next step is all of a sudden something happens in the family something happens with the business something happens with whatever it is and you really don't get to control where the next stop is where the next journey of your life is where you're going to be parked for the next year but what you do get to control is what the name of that city will be you get to control the name of that chapter. And there was a story that I forgot some of the details, but there was a story that I read last year, um, something to the extent of there was a family and they had uh, gone on a vacation somewhere and they stayed at a hotel. And it was like a terrible vacation if I remember the story correctly, like everything went wrong and they had this thing happen and they had uh, issues with the car and they had issues with this and the luggage got lost and like everything went wrong and um a few years later the family is driving by and they're they're going for another trip and as they're driving by they pass by the hotel that they stayed at and the kids in the back were like oh this was the best vacation in the world do you remember that hotel it was the best vacation in the world and the mom turns around says best vacation in the world this was actually the worst vacation in the world like what are you talking about She's like, why do you say it was the best vacation in the world? She's like, I love that hotel. The hotel was so much fun. We got to spend time with the family. That was the best vacation in the world. And the switch in the mind was, look, I called this city, the parents, I called the city the worst vacation in the world. My child called it the best vacation in the world. It was the same vacation. It was the same trip. It was the same stop of this journey. But we get to decide what we name the chapter of that, of that book. We get to decide the chapter of that journey, what the name is. the Mom said, I decided to name it the worst vacation in the world. My children decided to name it the best vacation in the world. You don't get to control your journey, but you get to control what you name each chapter of that journey. And that's just a matter of your perspective. There are things that in this life that we can control, there are things that we can't control. But one thing that's within us is our attitude of how we respond and our perception of how we look at the positive parts of life. And of course, you always try to improve things. I'm not saying that after this trip, you should say, hey, let's go back to the same place next year. If you had a bad experience, you shouldn't go back there the next time, not necessarily, but the, the perspective of saying how, you know, we had some positives of it and that's what I choose to focus on is what the child did. And it really like shook the mom and said, you know what? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I decided to name this the worst vacation in the world, but that's not what it was named. You know, we, that was a name that I came up with. Um, so that's like a nice symbolic idea from the the fact that there are journeys that we as a nation took and the cities were named after the experiences that we had there. You don't get to control the journey, but you get to control the names of, of each stop of the journey, okay? But that will stop. I'll open up if there's any questions. Uh, you could go ahead and ask now. Rabbi, did Moshe ask Hashem after the two and a half tribes said, can we stay outside of, on the other side of the Jordan? Okay, excellent question. So my, uh, Mr. Kinnan, you're asking the question of, in this proposal that Ruven and God had to, to enter the land, uh, to, to, to stay east of the Jordan River, and Moshe at the very beginning became very upset, and he said, <laughs> "He didn't even ask God because he, it, to him, it was very bad, because he, he viewed perceived it as them saying they don't want the land." After they had explained themselves, it seems that Moshe uh, accepts it, and I don't, I don't necessarily see in the text that he had requested permission from God. So there were other times where the daughters of Slovchar asked the question and Moshe had asked God. There was a situation where um with a group of people that didn't bring the korban pesach and they wanted to know if they could bring a korban pesach and Moshe had asked God, "Here we don't see that." Now, it's possible he did. It's possible God gave him a prophecy and it's possible that Moshe said, "No, this is something that that is that if they are going to stick to their word and they're going to come fight the war it's a win win for everyone that i'll accept it but there's something that i want to mention um that is pretty pretty wild the the land that this uh that the nation the, of god and ruven one of the areas that they are going to keep the torah tells us is called Nevo. it's atarot ve-Nimra ve-Cheshbon ve v'elalem musva unvo v'on what is that? Eight. We're counting nine areas that they want to that they want to settle in east of the Jordan River, and one of them is called Nevo. And the Torah later on tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu is buried in Har Nevo. Moshe Rabbeinu is buried in this land. And what the Torah tells us later on is that um, here. Moshe Rabbeinu thinks that this is a request for God and Reuven to have wealth for themselves. But implicitly, Hashem is actually thinking about Moshe Rabbeinu also. How so? Moshe Rabbeinu was not going to enter the land of Israel. So how is this going to work? Moshe Rabbeinu is not going to enter the land of Israel. Where will he be buried? Will he be buried in the land of Israel? Will they take his bones with them as they enter the land? And so maybe his body will be able to enter the land? Is that what's going to happen? Actually, what the Torah tells us here is that Moshe wasn't able to come into the land of Israel, but the land of Israel came to him. Because when Reuven and God decided that they are going to stay east of the Jordan River, and Moshe accepted because in the merit of their request, and he felt that it was positive, Moshe Rabbeinu now gets buried in their land, which is a land that is uh, inhabited by Am Israel, it becomes the land of Israel, essentially east of the Jordan River. So, essentially, uh, what some of the commentators explain is that you know you, you, your question was, did he check with God? Not necessarily did he, but the whole request was actually a master plan from Hashem sent by God, by them asking for this grass, and then them, and then Moshe saying, no, you have to do it the right way, and then finally coming to uh, terms and coming to an agreement what ended up happening is Moshe Rabbeinu was buried in the land of Israel because the land that he was buried in was where Am Yisrael was living in. So not to think that this wasn't from Hashem. You know, of course, everything is from Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't necessarily ask him, didn't necessarily ask him. It could be that he did. It could be that he had a prophecy. We don't see that. Even if it happened, the Torah doesn't highlight it because it's a decision that Moshe made. But what are telling us, but don't think that this was uh, something against Hashem's will. On the contrary, this was Hashem's master plan to make sure that Moshe Abin is going to be buried in the area where Am Yisrael is. Okay, with that, we'll stop here. Shavua tov, everyone. Great week. This week is Rosh Chodesh Ab. Hashem. I hope in this month of Ab we hear only good news for everyone, for Am Yisrael, and good health. Be'ezrael Hashem. Tov, Chodesh Tov, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi. Bye.